Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode six in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The First Fruits and the Early Church, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, I think it's well titled. You just said the first fruits. Um, that's the Feast of Pentecost. And so uh, that's what the Jews gathered to celebrate, the ingathering, the beginning of the harvest. Now, this harvest has been going on for 2,000 years, but this is the beginning of the spread of the gospel uh, in the church era, the apostolic era, and beyond. And so we're going to see the effect of Peter's amazing Pentecost sermon. And then we're going to see the, the church in its early state, in its functioning, and some elements of healthy church life. So what we're, we're going to see is the effects of the true gospel when it's preached, when the Holy Spirit moves and people are transformed, their lives are changed, and what happens as a result. Let me go ahead and read verses 37 through 47 in Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common." They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Andy, at the outset, what does it mean that the crowd was cut to the heart? And what is the significance of the question, brothers, what shall we do? I think the the phrase cut to the heart re- relates to the the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction for sin, uh, a deep conviction, and it feels painful. You are aware for the first time clearly how great your sins are and how and and how offensive your sins were in the eyes of God, and how dire your condition. Uh, the fact that you know Peter says, "Save yourselves from this corrupt generation," that there's a sense of impending doom, like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. I live in the city of destruction. If I don't flee this place, I'm going to be destroyed. And so they're convicted of personal sin mm. because they're accused of of being complicit directly in the death of Jesus. But also, uh, they see their own wickedness and their own, own sin. So it's a painful conviction of sin that goes to the core of their being, but it's produced life. It's a cutting of, of the heart in terms of, a, of an awareness and an emotional, even an emotional awareness of the gravity of sin. Now, I want to say one thing. I think this is very, very powerful, an insight that God gave me uh, some time ago, I believe, 
And it has to do with the ministry of the word. And it says in the book of Hebrews, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So there, the author of Hebrews is likening the word of God to a sharp sword. And uh, I think it's also interesting that it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, or literally cutting it straight. Orthotome, ortho is right, like orthodoxy is right doctrine, doctrine and the T-O-M word uh, is for cutting, uh, like an appendectomy means your appendix is cut out of your body because it's disease and needs to come out. So that's what the T-O-M, so it's a right cutting. So putting it all together, the word of God, if we rightly divide it, if we cut it open, it has... I don't know, like a fresh onion has this this mm. this effect on the one cutting it where tears start to flow. Mm. If you cut open the word, it will cut open the people. Mm. It will penetrate and cut open their hearts and show them their sin and bring them to Christ. Mm. And so I think about that with this piercing or cutting to the heart. It's something only the Spirit can do. Yeah, it's an amazing thing that Peter preaches this message and then the Spirit powerfully works it into their hearts. And, and Peter responds, right? He answers their question immediately. Yeah. He says, uh, repent and be baptized. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to repent? And what is significant about being immersed in water to signify conversion? Okay, so um, I think always we need to go to Jesus' preaching of the gospel as he begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the time is, is at hand, the kingdom of God is near, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Mm. So I think these are the fundamental twin commands given in any faithful gospel presentation. Whenever we share the gospel, once they've understood God as the lawgiver and the king and the judge and the creator of all things, and, and then they've understood themselves as human beings created in the image of God and meant to have a relationship with God, also sub- subject to God's laws, but having violated God's laws, having broken God's laws and sinned against him, and then understanding the provision of Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, did incredible miracles, suffered um, on the cross, died an atoning death on the cross, and was bodily raised from the dead. Those are the facts of the gospel. Then they say, what shall we do? The answer is always going to be Mark 1.15, some version of it. Hmm. Repent and believe. Hmm. So what is repentance? Repentance is simply to think differently in one sense, just linguistically. Metanoia means to change your mind, to think differently, but it's deeper than that. I think if we look at other scriptures, especially James chapter 4, there's a sense of grieving, mourning, wailing, changing your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, or in the uh, Beatitudes, to be a spiritual beggar, to realize you have nothing Mm. you can offer at all. There's nothing you can do to make your situation better in and of yourself. You're a spiritual beggar. Uh, You are mourn over your sin. You are meek. Uh, You're humbled by it. You're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. This is the effect of the Spirit. This is what it means to be uh, cut to the heart. So repentance then is a radical transformation of the inner being Mm. concerning sin. You see sin as it really is, that it's evil, you hate it, and you turn from it unto God, a turning away from sin and a turning to God. 
then the other half is to believe, believe the gospel. Uh, they asked in John 6, well, what should we do to work the works of God? Same question that Peter's answering here. What what should we do? Hmm. Well, it's going to be the same thing. Jesus said, this is the work of God. Believe in the one that he has sent. Believe in Jesus. So if we look at Peter's answer here, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So I don't think Peter doesn't know that it's repent and believe. I think to him, the water baptism was a sign, an outward and visible sign of the inner transformation of the spirit. Hmm and of a faith in Christ, that you have believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So that's what he's telling them to do. Now, water baptism is an important sign. Uh, it was part of the Great Commission that we are to baptize people in water, but it's an outward and visible sign of the real baptism. And the real baptism is done by the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Spirit. Uh, you're immersed by the Spirit into Jesus. Everything that Jesus is, his death, his life, that becomes yours. You become united with Christ by faith faith. And then water, the water baptism, full immersion to baptize means to immerse. So to be fully immersed in water is an outward and visible sign or a picture of the immersion you've already had in the spirit or mm. in Christ by the spirit. That's what he's telling them to do. Now, you mentioned a phrase, forgiveness of sins, and Peter also brings that up mm -hmm. here. What's the significance of the concept of forgiveness of sins? And what would our lives be like if there were no forgiveness of sins available. Oh, well, let's take the second half. We would go to hell. We would be we would be condemned. Hmm. We would have no hope. There's nothing we could do to earn God's forgiveness. It's done. It's finished. Uh, God is perfect and holy. All it takes is one sin and we're out. We're defiled. We're polluted. We're, we're filthy. We're, we're rejected. And so if there were no possibility of the forgiveness of sins, we'd be lost. But the great good news of the gospel is that forgiveness of sins is possible. And it is open for us as a gift of grace through the work of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness mm -hmm. of sins. Now, I'm going to begin a sermon in a number of weeks in the Gospel of Mark uh, talking about how heaven and hell are filled with human beings. And they all have one thing in common. They're all sinners. Mm -hmm. But the big difference between the ones in heaven and the ones in hell is the ones in heaven were forgiven wow. and the ones in hell weren't. And so fundamentally, the forgiveness of sins is an infinite difference in the end, that it's the difference between heaven and hell. And the fact that Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, because he saw that he had faith, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And they were offended. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, no one. They actually were right about that. They just didn't understand that Jesus was God. Mm. But who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, rise and walk. So the miracle uh, showed his power, but the real power is to be able to look at a sinner and say, your sins are forgiven. So that's the gift here. The idea is that our sins are covered. I think that's the best way to look at it. Uh, Psalm 32 says, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose mm. sins are covered. So that's that Hebrew parallelism, saying the same thing in different words. So forgiveness of sins is a covering of the sin. The sin cannot actually be removed, but it is covered. Yom Kippur is the day of covering, the day of covering of our sins. And so the atoning work of Jesus, the blood of Jesus covers over our sins and therefore atones them. So he who is of holy eyes, Habakkuk 1.13, and cannot look on evil, looks instead at the atoning work of Jesus that has been interposed between his holy eyes and our filthy sin. And that covering is what forgiveness of sins in uh, is, a covering of sin. 
So we've talked about repentance and baptism, which Peter mentions, as well as the forgiveness of sins. But he also says that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? And does everyone who repents and believes in Christ today receive that same gift? Right. I think the reason Peter's thinking about that is that this is what's called everyone together. The Holy Spirit has come with the sound of a rushing wind, mm. a, vig- a violent rushing wind, like a hurricane force wind, but just the sound, not an actual moving of air. And then the, the tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And they all began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And the Spirit moved them out from the upper room where they'd been waiting uh, under the command of God. And before that, hiding from the Jews, fear of the Jews in John's gospel. They were up there in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to come. Now they're out. They're moved out in power mm. and preaching. And the people heard the sound, and then they heard them all speaking, all of them in their own native languages, and they're trying to understand this and make sense of it. And Peter has linked it directly to the gift uh, in Joel of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So that's why he mentions um, this. There are other blessings of the gospel he could have mentioned here. Repent and be baptized, and you will receive forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, a guaranteed place in heaven. But he mentions instead specifically this gift of the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit isn't just for one individual or one one group of people or the Mm. leaders, Mm. like in the Old Testament, the kings, the prophets, the leaders, the key individuals. No, it's coming on everyone. And so you can yourself receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, the Spirit works regeneration. The Spirit works being born again. The Spirit takes out the heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh at the moment of conversion. At that moment, you are baptized into the Spirit. You immediately have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you've not been justified. Mm. The Spirit's not waiting for part two. Like part one, you're forgiven, but then we'll see. (laughs) Um, He immediately comes in as a deposit guaranteeing our full inheritance, Paul says in Ephesians. And also in Romans 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So if you have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, you're not a Christian. Mm. Now this would go over against some aberrant Pentecostal theologies which likens the baptism of the Spirit to a second work that comes later so that you could be a Christian but not yet baptized Mm. in the Spirit, a second experience. And uh, I think there's a better way of understanding the second and third and fourth and tenth movings of the Spirit. I would call that a filling of the Spirit. But the baptism of the Spirit comes on every genuine believer in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus, repent of your sins, believe in Christ, and you will 100% mm. receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for everybody. That's what he's saying. And that's exactly what he says, right? The promise is for you and for your children. But then he goes on to say the promise is for all who are far off, which mm-hmm. is an interesting statement. What's the significance of verse 39 for the ongoing mission of the church? Sure. And do you think Peter understood the significance of what he was saying? No, I don't think so. I, I think that that uh, he understood some of it, um, but I think prophets speak sometimes words that then are more fully explained later. And I think the proof of that is Peter's own surprise Hmm. uh, when he's prepared by the Spirit to go preach to Cornelius the Gentile. Hmm. So those who are far off in Ephesians chapter 2 are Gentiles. They're far off from the covenants of grace. They're far off from from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're they're far off. But uh, this relates back to our uniting theme verse in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes in on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and what? To the ends of the earth. That's far off. So the same Holy Spirit is going to be bringing in 
uh, people who are far away geographically, far from God spiritually, and uh, they are going to be brought in. Now, I want to say something about the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't think we fully understand just how how amazing it is to have the third person of the Trinity residing within us, and and that He will, as Jesus said, never leave us. Mm. Everything we know about Jesus Christ, all of it, 100% of it, has been ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the scriptures, all of the gospel accounts that give us the facts of Jesus' life. Apart from the scriptures, we know nothing about Jesus. But apart from the Spirit, we wouldn't care. We might even own a Bible that would stay on the shelf. If the Spirit didn't move in us, we would go through life like dead men spiritually. Mm. It is because the Spirit moved out in sovereign power and worked in our lives that we are Christians. So we owe our salvation as much to the Spirit as we do to Christ and as we do to the the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equally responsible for and active in our salvation. And what does the Spirit do for us? It's incalculable. The Spirit convicts us of of sin. The Spirit assures us of God's love. The Spirit pours out God's love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit guides us and gives us wisdom and illuminates the Scriptures when we open open up the Scriptures and gives us the benefits of of the gifts of the Spirit through other brothers and sisters who have the gifts of hospitality or of generosity or faith or prayer or teaching. And we just drink at that fountain. The Spirit is moving in us and caring for us and, and telling us that we've got this incredible inheritance in the future, mm. in, the, in, in heaven, and gives us a foretaste of that. So we get deposits guaranteeing the full inheritance. It's incalculable what the Spirit does for us. And I could easily become emotional when I speak about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian has the gift of the Spirit within him or her. And that's the incredible power that was at work that day as Peter preached and then would go to the ends of the earth and is still through the church the power that we depend on right. to make this gospel known. Also, he says, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Are you going there next? That's or? where we're headed. All yeah. right, so go ahead. We'll so you, you he says it's for also everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. What is that call that he's referring to here? Who's yep. initiating this? Who Really, who's the author of our salvation. Okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go right to Romans chapter 8 where it says, Those whom God foreknew, he predestined uh, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. So that's a sequence of our salvation. So foreknowledge, predestination, um, and then calling then justification. So Mm. the calling precedes justification. As I read it, there are two aspects of the calling. There's the human physical verbal calling that many receive. Yeah. And that's the the message of the gospel that is the basis of faith. Faith comes from hearing the word. So there's an outward external calling that goes um, by the ministry of the word, the evangelist, the Christian parent. The Christian, um, the uh, Sunday school teacher, the mm. the the dorm mate, the roommate, uh, the 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 guy who or or gal who shared the gospel with you. All right, that's the calling. Your eardrums vibrated, or your eyes read the facts of the gospel. You could do it in a in a hotel room with a Gideon Bible, mm. and that's the external call. Then, secondly, there's an internal call, mm. and that's 
basically like Jesus calling to Lazarus saying, Lazarus, come forth. Now that's a whole different matter. That's a supernatural calling where God calls things that are not as though they were and gives life to the dead. That's a powerful calling by the spirit that gives life where there was death. Mm. So I think Peter means all of that. The one whom he will call by missions and evangelism, and he will call in the inner man by the working of the spirit. Verse 40 says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What does this verse teach us about preaching and evangelism? And what do you think of exhorting or warning people over their souls? Yeah, this is a very convicting verse. And Wes, you and I have talked about it before. What it shows me is the kind of passion that should be in every evangelist's heart, every Christian's heart toward the lost. Mm. Uh, Peter is clearly emotional here. He's he's using whatever words, and, and, and Luke, through the Holy Spirit, doesn't tell us what they are, but there were many, many other words, lots of other scriptures, lots of other persuasions. Come now, let us reason together. What would hold you back from being a Christian? Do you not know the danger you're in? Mm. I'm warning you mm. to flee the wrath to come. Do you not understand what that would be like to have Almighty God as your enemy? And so there's an emotion here. There's a pleading as though God himself were in us, begging us, pleading with us, mm. be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5. So there is this sense of exhortation or one translation says pleading. And what you and I have discussed is how awkward this would be. I, I do a lot of, of airplane evangelism. Uh, whenever I uh, ride on a plane, I try to share with the person sitting near me. Uh, it's been more difficult in COVID because there isn't anyone sitting near me. But but more and more, we, we have opportunities mm-hmm. to talk uh, as things get back to normal. And I just strike up conversations and I just talk to them and just try to get to know what's going on in their lives. But at some some point, I want to share the gospel. And, and I've had many very in-depth spiritual mm. conversations mm. Um, and we'll talk the whole time and the people will just pour out. They, I think they feel safe because they know that when we land, we'll never see each other again. Mm. Um, but I've been challenged by Acts 2.40 in that Peter pleaded with people. He begged them. Mm. And it gets a little weird. Uh, yeah. I guess a little unseemly, but it does line up with the seriousness of the situation. Yeah. So I guess at least what I want to do is care very deeply about the lostness of the people that I'm sharing with and allow some of that passion to come in, some of that pleading to come in. I don't think we want to blow the person away because that'll shut it down. Yeah. They'll they'll shut it down. Like you said, they'll they'll call the flight (laughs) attendant. (laughs) Push the little button. Yeah, push the little button. Okay. Another seat, (laughs) please. please. Yeah. Yeah. But there is a pleading. And I think it's appropriate, let's say within families, we've heard of of Christian mothers Mm -hmm. begging God to save their their teenagers and and tears coming down their face. They're pleading in prayer. And that that can happen. Andy, I think you've shared a story with me before, perhaps, about having something that wasn't that over-the-top pleading, but basically saying, like, mm-hmm. I, I want to spend eternity with you, and, yeah. and this message changes everything. And yeah. so I think that that was an example where, mm-hmm. you know, it's perhaps not this over-the-top, mm-hmm. weeping, tearful moment, but definitely an appeal yeah. saying, listen, without this, not only will I never see you again after mm-hmm. we get off this plane, but I, right. I'll never see you again on into eternity, and I want to spend eternity with you, yeah. uh, especially based on the conversation we've had. So I just, mm-hmm. I think there's, uh, you know, we've talked about this as well, just a compassion that wells yeah. up in our hearts when we recognize the incredible grace and mercy that God has poured out yeah. on us. It's a good story. I've also said to an individual, I pray that you will not be able to sleep tonight mm-hmm. because of the conversation mm-hmm. we've had. Yeah. I never n- knew what happened with that, <laughs> but I did pray it. Yeah. I said, God, keep him up, keep him awake. Let him reach for that Gideon Bible in the hotel room or mm-hmm. something, you know. Anyway. Yeah, that's neat. What would be the effect of preaching the gospel accurately? 
but without any emotion, passion, warning, or pleading. If we were to just get all the facts right, yeah. but there's not this sense of urgency, what what comes of that? Well, that's that's I think there, that's an anomalous conversation or pre presentation. It's like you're you're talking about the most intense things in the world, but you don't seem to care about it at mm. all. Now I have to be careful because there are different kinds of personalities and there are different preaching styles. And I've been told that Jonathan Edwards had a a less than passionate type of presentation. He wasn't like Whitfield. Now Whitfield was uh, someone called the divine dramatist. It was very dramatic, and I could I could see him weeping and pleading. George Whitfield, Edwards was more cerebral, but his sermon was still anointed. Uh, most famous ser- famous sermon in American church history: "Sinners mm. in the Hands of an Angry God." His words were so powerful, and his manner was almost like I, I remember likening it to this. Imagine that you have somebody having very significant marital problems, and he comes home, and his wife. Ha, is disheveled and and she hasn't really gotten dressed for the day and the house is a wreck and she's just sitting there weeping and she comes in and starts yelling at you, you know, and all that. Compare that to you come home, the house is immaculate. There's three pieces of luggage there at the door. She's in a business suit and she said, well, oh, I was writing you a letter. I'm leaving you today. Um, this is, you know, um, the situation. This is, you know, so um, I, I'm not going to tell you where I'm going, but but I'm gone. So of those two, which if you cared about the marriage and you wanted the marriage to survive, which would be scarier? Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. say the second, you know, because she's done. And with Edwards, there was this feeling like, I don't really think there's anything can, that can help you people. You've already heard the gospel many times. I think that this is what's going to happen to you. And they were like begging for one more chance. Mm-hmm. In any case, I think there has to be an underlying deep passion that mm-hmm. the people genuinely be converted. Yeah. Verse 41 says that those who received his word were baptized. What does it mean that they received his word? And how does this passage show the power of God to transform sinners' hearts? Yeah, to receive the word means they agree with it. They know it's true and they accept it into their hearts. They 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 are open to the message and they welcome it in. And um, as a result, they uh, have become Christians. You know, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you don't accept the message without believing in it. And mm. if you have faith, you're you're in. You're you're saved. And so they become Christians, and they're added to the local church. They're added um, to their number. They're baptized. So that is a straight out, no doubt about a busy day. <laughs> All right. I I mean, three thousand souls. You're gonna be there a while. You're going to be there a while if you're mm-hmm. going to do due diligence and not just do a mass river baptism like the barbarians did, you know, in 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 Christendom in medieval, you know, Europe where they'd be like convert or die, we'll kill you, or you can all get river baptized. That was uh, not a good pattern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that happened a lot, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with those barbarian tribes and then the so-called Christian tribes that would convert them. No, these folks, these apostles, did almost certainly due diligence and said, "Tell me your story." Uh, what's happened, what's mm. going on in you, and then, yeah. all right, I'm ready to baptize you. 3,000, that's a big number. Yeah. So the passage turns now from really the conclusion of Peter's mm. sermon and the outcome of it to a description of life in the early church. Wow. What four things are listed as central to the life of the early church, and what is the significance of the verb devoted? Yeah, so Acts 2.42 is a roadmap for every local church to say, hey, let's make certain that these things are happening. So uh, let, let me take the second question first. What is the significance of the word devoted? They are passionately involved in these things. They're, they're not. They're not. Eh, you know, nominal. There's no nominalism here. Yeah. They're in, mm-hmm. fully in. 
their hearts are consumed with it, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We're not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us. And that brings us to the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that's doctrine, the solid ministry of the word of God. It is the most important thing that happens in a local church. Hmm. Uh, it's the most important thing Jesus did in his day-to-day ministry was teach people the word of God. So they devoted themselves to, it says, the apostles' teaching. So the apostles' teaching is what we have in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the apostolic testimonies of Jesus. And then Paul was an apostle. And so the doctrine of the gospel, all of those things, that's apostolic teaching. And they drank it in. So every healthy local church has a solid, strong teaching ministry, teaching and preaching the word of God. Mm. Secondly, to the fellowship, the koinonia, the sharing together, which we're going to describe in a minute. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just that family of God. Hey, we're, we're, de- we're devoted horizontally to each other. And we're devoted to expressing our love to each other in many ways. We're in it together. We're a family. We love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Their love for each other is evident and obvious. And they devoted themselves to each other. And then to the breaking of bread, I think it probably means the Lord's Supper, the Mm. ordinance of communion. Although Mm. it could mean just a fellowship meal where they would eat together. And Jesus frequently ate together. But it seems with this important listing in Acts 2.42... This is probably the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then finally to prayer. They were people of prayer. So prayer in the ministry of the word is vital. We'll see that in Acts chapter six. And so they're gonna pray together. They're gonna pray for each other. They're gonna pray for circumstances that are coming and mostly for the spread of the gospel. Yeah. So we're gonna come back to verse 43, but it seems like there's a close connection with the fellowship mentioned Mm -hmm. in 42 with what's seen in verses 44 and 45. What are these three verses? 42, 44, and 45 teach us about sharing and unity in the early church, and how might this be a pattern for us today? Well, they didn't consider that their possessions were their own. He's going to say that later uh, in Acts chapter 4. So they cared more about each other than they cared about their stuff. So, you know, it's just like First John says, if you see your brother in need and, and you don't do anything for him, how can you say that the love of God is in them? Let's not in you. Let's not uh, love in word only, but in actions and in mm. truth. And so, um, you know, there were, there were no, we're told later, there's no needy persons among them because people sold things, lands, houses, different things, and put the money at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So fundamentally, they shared things together. Now, this is voluntary. People said, is this communism? Mm. No, the difference is communism probably started with texts like this, but it was godless Mm. and state-enforced. Yeah. So basically the state comes along and tells you you'll give up all your stuff and it's going to be shared for the common good, for the people. Uh, but what ends up happening is an oligarchy of, of of wealthy rulers that plunder the people. It's just the same thing. You know, unless you've got the transformation of the gospel, it's just going to end up being selfishness. In this case, it's people wanted to give. They would rather their their brother or sister in need have it than, than they have it. Mm. So they, they made certain that there was a sharing so that he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little. So they loved each other more than they loved their possessions and goods. And they sold them and they gave to anyone as he had need. So they shared everything. Now, this, is, this does not vitiate private ownership because Ananias and Sapphira still owned the land and mm-hmm. still had the money. It was voluntary. 
Um, also, clearly, there were other things that were definitely they belong to you, like the sanctity of marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife is my wife, mm-hmm. uh, and and no one else's, and we they didn't share those things, but they shared their possessions. Verse forty three, circling back now, says. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Mm -hmm. How's a certain fear and awe a healthy, positive thing for a church? And what is the importance of the wonders and signs done through the apostles? Well, I think the wonders and signs, the miracles generated a sense of awe. There was a sense of the immediate presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, As we'll see later in chapter four, they have a prayer meeting after Peter and John were arrested for healing a, a beggar in the temple. And the, the room where they were praying was shaken, and they were all filled with this, the Holy Spirit and mm. spoke the word of God boldly. Well, the physical shaking of the room would result in people feeling awe, a sense of the presence of God. So whenever there's in the Bible a theophany, that is, God shows up. God is here. The infinite God of the universe is here right now, and you are aware of that. There's a sense of fear and mm. wonder. You fall on, the, on your face a sense of the presence of Almighty God. And so people felt that. And I think it was because of the immediacy and the power of the Holy Spirit in everyone and the fact that the apostles were doing miracles. Now, no one did miracles like Jesus. Uh, Jesus, every day, I'm thinking literally thousands of healings, Mm. thousands of miracles. Mm. The apostles did some miracles. They did some healings. They did some works. uh, But they did do them. And so the people were seeing these things and they were amazed. Now, later we'll see, as I've mentioned a couple of times already, Ananias and Sapphira, when they sinned and they lied, they dropped dead. No one touched them. Hmm. No one touched them. They just dropped dead. Fear and awe came on the whole, whole congregation. People realize you're dealing with Almighty God. He has the power of life and death. And there's a sense of awe and wonder. And they were doing these miracles. I do believe these miracles were unique to the apostolic age. I don't think they continued after the apostles. Uh, I think God still does miracles. Still, in answer to prayer, does amazing things. But individuals who have names, who are Mm -hmm. called apostles, and everywhere they go, there are these signs and wonders that Paul says, mark an apostle. That's done. We don't see that now. What other descriptions of the early church does Luke give in verses 46 and 47? And considering that description, what areas do you think our modern churches need to grow in? Well, every day they met together. They wanted to be together. You know, we, we get together on Sunday. But they were together all the time. They wanted life together. They mm. loved each other. And so they mm. used to meet together. But I also think they met together formally for teaching. So they're, they're there every day devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so it also says they broke bread in their home. So that's why the e- earlier uh, breaking of bread could just be a fellowship meal, you know, just eating together. Um, so I could go either way because it is mentioned here, and I mm-hmm. don't think that the break, breaking bread in their homes and eating together with glad and sincere hearts is referring to the Lord's Supper. No, they just shared meals together like mm-hmm. Jesus did. Yeah. They just eat, reclined at table with one another and ate together. Um, also, I think, you know, they're poor and needy. Um, and so the people would come together and they didn't have anything, but now they do. They mm-hmm. had enough to eat. Mm-hmm. So they were hungry two months ago, three months ago, but now they're just being fed because of the love that people had for each other. There were no needy persons among them, it says. Yeah. They, every need was met. So it's it's a rich, full, horizontal Christian community just going on here. It's, just, it's the early church. It's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, there's something powerful too, I think, about uh, the beginning of verse 47 where it says, praising God and having favor with all people. I think about uh, 2 Peter where it talks about, or 1 
Peter, I'm going to get this mixed up, where it talks about essentially being ready to give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. There's a sense that mm-hmm. not just that we're praising God for what he's done and being like sandpaper to the people around us, but right. that there's a there's a genuine love for and care for and compassion for and winsomeness toward mm-hmm. the people around us with this incredible news that's transformed their lives. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I'm going to talk about this, I think, in the sermon I'm going to preach pretty soon on being fishers of men. I think we need to heighten within lost people the ultimate FOMO, fear of missing (laughs) out. You don't want to miss Mm. this. Paul, I think Paul openly talks about this when he says that he makes much of his ministry in the presence of unconverted Jews to arouse in them jealousy. Yeah. He wants them to be jealous. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. So he wants them to Mm. know they're missing out on good stuff. Mm. And if, if they would just believe in Christ, they can come in. So there's a sense of that you're missing this. And then there's the ultimate FOMO, which is heaven itself. Mm. You don't want to miss heaven. And so the idea here is there's a rich, full, loving community, and you can be part of it. And so, you know, the, the people, it says they enjoyed the favor of all the people. It wasn't sandpaper. They're like, man, these people are wonderful people. They're excellent people. Mm. And they wanted they wanted to be part of it. Now, that only goes so far because there was no, no wonderful person as wonderful as Jesus, and he was hated. Right. And so when you start testifying to people that what they do is evil, some of them will be converted. Most of them won't. And mm-hmm. the ones that won't, they're going to persecute. Yeah. So we'll get to that. But at any rate, um, the people that are unconverted elect, they're interested. Hmm. They're, they're like, man, I, I want in on that. I want to know what's going on with that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Who ultimately gets credit for building the church in verse 47? And yeah. what final thoughts do you have for us today? Well, here it says the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So there the Lord generally is Jesus. Um, and I want to just, I want to just quote the end, uh, the very end of Mark's gospel because I love the statement uh, in Mark 16, uh, 19 and twenty. It says, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. Now listen to this, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So Jesus is up there in heaven working with them, the very thing he said he would do. Hmm. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He is there by the Spirit. That's amazing. And so by the Spirit, he is adding to their number, look at that word, daily, hmm. those who are being saved. Hmm. Now, Wes, wouldn't you love that to happen here at First Absolutely. Baptist Durham? Every day, people being saved. Now, that's mm. awesome. That's what we generally call a revival, but wouldn't it be great if we were just going on? Absolutely. Any final thoughts on chapter two as we conclude our yeah. time looking ahead to uh, chapter three? What an awesome chapter. Let's go back it's and incredible. do it again. Come on, let's go back and do Acts <laughs> two all over again. But this is the day of Pentecost, the first fruits, 3,000, healthy church, uh, the gospel exploding. It's awesome. Yes. Well, this has been episode six in our Acts Bible Study podcast, and we want to invite you to join us next time for episode seven entitled Peter and John Heal a Famous Beggar, where we'll discuss Acts 3 verses 1 through 10. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.